Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today, we're joined by Roger Owens from his home in Pittsburgh, where he's now teaching spiritual formation classes to his seminary students online, enjoying family meals with his teenagers again, and discovering that the Academy and its rhythms are a helpful guide in this time of global pandemic. And always, because we're finding new ways to connect and listen and converse with one another in the midst of this global pandemic, Note that the sound quality of our conversation may not be what you're used to hearing. However, Zoom has become our trusted companion in these times of social distancing and staying home, and we're grateful it helps us capture these holy and healing conversations right now. Be on the lookout for more discussions with Academy leaders and faculty in the days and weeks ahead. Roger Owens received his PhD in theology from Duke University, where he was awarded a Lilly Fellowship for the formation of a learned clergy. Before that, he completed his MDiv at Duke Divinity School. As an undergraduate, he studied philosophy and Bible religion at Anderson University in Indiana. Roger is an ordained elder in the North Carolina Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, and in North Carolina, he served both urban and rural churches for eight years as co-pastor with his wife, the Reverend Ginger Thomas before coming to Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. His books include Threshold of Discovery, A Field Guide to Spirituality in Midlife, A New Day in the City, Urban Church Revival, What We Need is Here, Practicing the Heart of Christian Spirituality, Pastoral Work, Engagements with the Vision of Eugene Peterson, Abba, Give Me a Word, The Path of Spiritual Direction, Wendell Berry and Religion, Heaven's Earthly Life, and The Shape of Participation, A Theology of Church Practices, which was called This Decade's Best Work in Ecclesiology by the Christian Century. Roger has preached and lectured across the country, and his work has appeared in the Christian Century, Currents in Theology and Mission, The Journal of Religious Ethics, New Blackfriars, and elsewhere. Roger serves as both Academy faculty and on the Academy Advisory Board, and he and his wife are the parents of three children, Simeon, Silas, and Mary Claire. What follows is a conversation with Roger about the expansiveness of God, the invitations of a global pandemic, his writing process, the spiritual practice of music, and so much more. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. Welcome, Roger, to the Academy podcast. We're so glad that you're with us today, joining us, I think, from your study, your basement in Pittsburgh. And I'm here in my home in Nashville, Tennessee, and we're grateful for the technology that's connecting us and just grateful that you're spending some time with us, taking some time out of your day. And before we get started and all of our, as we get started in our conversation, I'd love for you just to tell us about who you are and the story about you that you want to share with us, where you're from, what the spiritual geography of your life kind of looks like, and, and yeah, what do you love? Tell us. Yeah. Well, I just want to say it's really wonderful to 
be able to take this time out in an afternoon and have this conversation. I'm delighted uh, to be here and to be able to do it. Um, uh, I grew up in Indiana, and that is not insignificant for me. Um, now I live in Pittsburgh. There's an Indiana, a town about an hour from here called Indiana. So when I got to Pittsburgh and people asked me where I'm from, I'd say, I'm from Indiana. And they say, oh, just up the road, I think I got to, maybe you know my cousin. I said, I think we're thinking about the wrong Indiana. Right. No, I'm, I'm a Hoosier. Um, and, uh, um, and then and spent a lot of time in North Carolina, 13, um, maybe 15 years in North Carolina. So if I say y'all, that's the one thing I, I kept from, uh, from North Carolina. Um, but uh, I, I love about Indiana, you, you said something about geography and the geography matters to me so much because those years and I was in North Carolina, I would drive back through West Virginia, through the mountains and the hills, through Kentucky, through Southern Indiana, that was still hilly. And then it was about a place halfway between Cincinnati and where I lived where I would flatten out a little bit. And I'd always roll the windows down and I would just feel like I could, uh, I could breathe. The, the sky was big, the, the, the farm houses were dotted along the landscapes. If I timed my drive right, the sun would be setting so I could see a sunset. Um, and it just felt expansive and wide and I could relax into that. And I knew I was home and I knew I was where I belong. And that, that feeling has never changed about driving back uh, to Indiana, uh, to the Midwest. So it was a shock when I moved to Pittsburgh um, and didn't really know it was in the hills and, and, uh, and, and came here for the first time to interview for a job and then to buy a house. And I, I couldn't get over all the hills and, and felt a little claustrophobic and, couldn't see a sunset and oftentimes I'll see a sunset and, oh, you know, I know there's one over the hill and I'll, I'll joke uh, to Ginger, my wife, I'll say, I bet in Indiana, that's really pretty. Um, Cause right. you can't, you can't, you can't see it here, but you know, um, uh, there's a connection sometimes between the geographies that shape our lives and how we view the world and the language we use to think about and express our, our faith. Uh, our way of prayer, our, our walk with, with God. And, um, and I think the language that, I, that I'm most comfortable with that speaks to me about what God is doing in my life and where God is leading is that language of expansiveness, uh, of wide openness, of, of place to breathe, of, of room, to, room to grow. Um, when, uh, when I feel like God is really pulling me in a new direction. It's almost always in that direction of, of having a heart of love that's open a little bit wider. And I can just close my eyes and see the, the horizon in Indiana over the cornfields. And that speaks of that kind of wide open uh, embrace of the world and of others and of what's, what's new and of what's challenging and of what's painful. Right? It, it holds it all um, as the love of God does. And, and, and so there is this geography to, to, the, uh, to my, my sense of faith. Um, and, uh, and it's helpful for me as I, I'm driving along the narrow hills of this Pittsburgh terrain. Uh, I long for that expansiveness. Yeah. yeah. I experienced that. And listeners of this podcast have heard me say that because I'm from West Texas. And so I resonate deeply with that open sky and big horizon and have been shaped by that in my faith as well. And of course, living here in Nashville, I have to sort of really kind of 
manipulate my way toward <laughs> to where I can really see a sun sunset sunrise over the hills uh, through the well, trees. I remember once talking to my spiritual director about this very this very thing about the sense of wanting driving back to Indiana and this expansiveness and this room to breathe and and how the the hills of of Western Pennsylvania made me feel claustrophobic. And she said, you know, people from around here will talk about feeling hugged and embraced mm -hmm. by the hills, right? And you can imagine how that would shape a language for God as well, right? This this yep. this embrace and this being held close. Um, and uh, so, you know, it shapes us. It shapes us. Yeah. I think the first time I thought about this was when I was reading Merton's Seven Story Mountain. And I just, it really jumped out at me. I haven't gone back to try to do the work of figuring it out, but it jumped out at me the way he describes all the different geographies. It's really important, these descriptions, whether it's France or England or uh, Bermuda or, uh, or New York City or then finally Kentucky, right? The geography really has an important impact on how his faith is being shaped and his openness uh, to God. Yeah. And I first thought about it reading Dakota, by Kathleen Norris and I read that in college and thought oh this is this is why I think about God this way and and that really clicked for me so yeah my husband grew up in Nashville and so the hugged by God for him is the trees mm -hmm. whereas you know I see them as sort of a you know prohibitive he sees them as this kind of beautiful security and and so we've we've played with that too because when we drive uh, the very long drive to West Texas to see my family, he's kind of like, "Really? You you like this?" <laughs> I'm like, "Yes, I'm breathing better just knowing I'm driving west." So yeah, that's a lovely thing. Are, do you still have family in Indiana? Do you get back there often or? We go back um, every once in a while. I have a sister who has a little house on a lake that we go and visit. Um, I was back a good bit last year. My mother in Shelbyville passed away last September. And uh, I was back in September uh, with her. Um, in fact, one of the times I was back, it was the week before she passed away, I was back to uh, lead a retreat and preach at the church I grew up in. And I took some time on that weekend to um, go back to the neighborhood that I grew up in until I was in kindergarten. So not the neighborhood I remember well, uh, but the very first house I lived in, the neighborhood where I was born, um, and it took me a little while to find the house, but I, I parked at the entrance of the neighborhood and walked around the neighborhood and I found the house, uh, and I stood at the driveway of the house and I turned around, so not facing the house, but facing the other way. And what you see from that driveway is a wide open cornfield and a basketball goal, uh, and sky and the sun was setting. And I thought to myself, of course. These, this is the image of my first right, eight or nine years of life. This is what I saw yeah. every day. I took a picture, sent it to my wife and kids, and I said, this explains a lot uh, about, yeah. what I, about what I love. Yeah. yeah. You love basketball? Uh, we do like basketball. Yeah, I do, yeah. Uh, especially yeah. Duke basketball. Not, not these yeah. days, of course, but yeah. Right. I know I, that was, you know, I guess somewhat trivial, but I was really sad that March Madness was – canceled when all of this started happening with the with COVID and with the pandemic and it was just fascinating for me to pay attention to my energy around that because I have joked and say that I live for March Madness and I do I love it I've loved it since I was young and always filled out a bracket with my 
family and all of that. And so it felt like this really important kind of spring ritual that was, you know, taken uh, with, with so many other things that were taken as well. So. Yeah. Things we love and also things that were just distractions that kept us from the things we love or should love. Right. Uh, right. Right. Yes. Profound shifts. And we'll get to more of that in a little bit, but course this is the academy podcast and so i'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you made your way to the academy of course your faculty um and also on our advisory board but uh yeah when did you first show up with us and why do you keep coming back um i read a book by robert benson i bet a lot of people who go to the academy started uh by reading a book by robert benson and uh, my wife had been in ministry for five years, and folks who are in ministry know that often year five is the hit-a-wall year. And um, I read this book, and he's describing this retreat he goes on, and I said, Ginger, this might be exactly what you need. And so I convinced her uh, to go to this two-year retreat. Um, we lived out in the country uh, in, in a parsonage, um, and we had two tiny little boys and I can't believe I did this to myself because every three months for five days, she drove away and left me with, wow. um, with tobacco fields and a church and two tiny little boys. And so it was kind of my own spiritual formation retreat uh, that we were having um, at the time. Um, but every, every time she'd drive away and she'd come back and it was just what she needed. And so it was clear that I wanted to do this as well. And I longed for it and looked forward to it. And so as she was finishing up hers, then I, I started uh, my uh, two-year academy, um, which was just an extraordinary experience, um, as it is for many people. And so I finally got to leave her. The boys were a little older. They could at least, you know, pull up their own pants when I went to the academy. So, right. uh, But uh, I got to drive away every, every three months. Um, it wasn't long after I finished my two-year academy that a, um, a retreat leader um, – uh, called me and she said, uh, Roger, in four weeks, um, we have our week at the Academy on Protestant Spirituality. Our presenter has backed out. I'm wondering if in four weeks you can be ready to come and fill in uh, for our presenter. Um, and my, my mind was saying, no, of course you can't do this in four weeks. No, there's no way you could do this. And my mouth was saying, yes, I'd love to. I'd be happy to do this. And so... Um, in, in four weeks, I hurriedly put together wow. um, some lectures on Protestant spirituality. Um, and that was about 10 years ago. And, and since then, I think I've um, presented it 20 or 25 weeks um, yeah. at different wow. academies, five-day academies, two-year academies. So um, it, it started, started about a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. What about the academy do you think is important uh, in these times in particular? Or... Well, it's important at any time, mm -hmm. um, but I just made reference to the to the way our distractions, um, yeah. our typical distractions, are being kind of uh, torn away from us. Now there are plenty of other things that we can distract ourselves with. You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber is now streaming his musicals on the weekends, um, right? So if if you yep. can't watch March Madness, you can watch um, you know Phantom of the Opera on the weekend. Uh, so yeah. there are plenty of new distractions, but. Um, uh, uh, some, sometimes I teach in the first week of the Academy on the history of Christian spirituality. We always get to the Desert Fathers, usually on the first day if I'm, you know, my schedule's right. Sometimes at the beginning of the second day if I'm off schedule. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but one of the things we say about the Desert Fathers is how they left 
they left the city. They fled to the desert uh, in order to, to escape the myriad distractions of the desert that kept them from attending to who they were and their own life with God. Mm. Um, and once you're in the desert, you can't escape the distractions of your own interiority. It's there. There's nothing to distract you from that. And if we allow ourselves in this time uh, to imagine it this way, we can think uh, that the desert has come to us, especially for those of us who are hunkered down in our houses uh, with fewer of the dis- typical distractions. Now, for a lot of people, that's not possible, and they're working hard, harder than ever, uh, and they're right. risking themselves. But there are, uh, there's a good many people who, for whom our own homes have become like monastic cells, the desert has, has come our way. Um, and so we can keep finding new distractions um, or we can say, uh, I'm going to face um, the, sometimes the, the, the vapidness and the boringness of my inner life or the horror of my inner life or the, the fearful and anxious thoughts that I would use Netflix and March Madness to keep at bay. It's right here. Well, one of the things the Academy does is it gives you a taste of the desert. Mm. It says, okay, we're not ready to move into the desert and be alone with ourselves and God um, over the long haul suddenly, uh, but we're gonna give you times of, of desert. We're gonna give you times of silence. We're gonna give you times of reflection. We're gonna give you invitations um, to pay attention to your life with God in ways that you're, you're uh, regular routine life doesn't allow you to do. And we do that, of course, so that when you're actually in the regular routines of your life, you're able to be more attentive to the, to the movement of the Spirit um, and how the Spirit is teaching you who you are and how the Spirit is teaching you who God is at the same time. Um, so it's possible that folks who have been through a two-year academy or to a number of five years, five-day academies have some spiritual resources yeah. um, that have... I mean, maybe not made them ready for this, uh, but equip them in just the littlest bit of way to deal with the silence, to deal with the solitude, to deal with the disruption in routine. Um, uh, maybe given a little bit of wisdom to reshape routine, uh, uh, right? Um, so we maybe have some time when we're quarantined to say, what routines do I actually want to have in my life? Because in so much of our lives, other people are telling us what our routines have to be the work schedule, the child, children's schedule, all those, all those kinds of things, the, the basketball schedule, right? Uh, you don't get to decide when you watch, right? So, so we have some, there's some space there. Uh, the deserts come to us. The academy gives us some resources uh, to live and survive and sometimes even thrive in the desert. Um, and that's where a lot of us are right now. Yeah. You were saying as we got started earlier and, and we're getting acquainted with the technology that you have been teaching now uh, spiritual formation online. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious what, what that has looked like for you and, and what that experience has been like. Yeah, I, I teach spiritual, the introduction to spiritual formation at the seminary uh, where I work. Um, and you won't be surprised to know that professors are often the last people to think that uh, technology can help us out and we're resistant. Uh, we think if you're not together in the room, we, I just can't do this teaching if we're not mm-hmm. together. And um, even we as a faculty have been wrestling with this and we've been going slower than some faculties have. And now suddenly we don't have a choice. We have been 
um, freed from the time we have to dig our heels in and to procrastinate or come up with good reasons why we can't do this and we have no choice. On one Wednesday, three times in a day, I met with sections of students and we sat in a circle and we lit a candle and I led them in prayer. We shared our lives with one another, we listened. And then the next Wednesday, we couldn't meet. Right? So um, we just had to do it. Um, and uh, we had to come together over Zoom. Um, and, and the first thing I did was invite them. We always began our time of prayer with some kind of centering, usually with silence, attending to our breath as a way of helping ground us in our bodies and in the present moment. But that time I invited them to imagine the circle that we were usually in. Uh, imagine the candle, imagine the three crosses and the, the, the tablecloth over the, uh, the table in, this, in the center. Um, and so we find, we find ways, right? We find that our imaginations are more powerful than we had thought and can take us to places we didn't know we could go with them. Um, we find that, um, that connection uh, over screen, though not like being flesh and blood, uh, is sometimes better than, better than nothing at all. Um, you know, and I've heard a lot of folks say, oh, this is turning us all into Gnostics. You know, we don't feel like we need to be, you know, churches or, or worshiping online. We're all separate. You know, we're, we don't care about our bodies anymore. And I'm not a Gnostic, I can tell you that, because when I sit in the front of my computer for three hours, my body hurts, my right. neck hurts, my shoulders hurt, and it's still there. I'm still there. I'm still in the flesh. Um, um, you know, I think we're actually more like the Apostle Paul now writing letters to his congregations. And I, when he says, you know, how I long for you, I long to be with you. I think we can just enter into that kind of longing, but know that um, being separate and apart and not being able to be with the people we want has never been a completely foreign experience to Christian communities over, over time. Yeah, All right. Well, I was reading a couple of your articles that you've written for the Christian Century uh, since the beginning of March. Uh, Can Lent help prepare us for a pandemic? And I think your most recent learning from Mary during a pandemic and uh, the one about Mary, I just want to say the imagery that has stuck with me is your prayer shawl that you describe in that article and how you're, I think, sitting on your back porch or somewhere outside in nature and that idea of, of God and God's love as, as a blanket uh, covering us. At least that's what mm. stayed with me and hung out with me. And so thank you for that. A but I wonder shawl. what, yeah, go ahead. Parshall, by the way, that was the gift of an Academy retreat leader mm. at a five day Academy in Florida. And I use it yeah. quite frequently. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. So I wonder what the writing has looked like for you during this global pandemic and crisis and what has been invitational, uh, challenging, joyful. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, uh, I, I like to write and writing has been uh, at once harder and more necessary for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just thinking about the, the short little piece on, on Mary. I mean, that was a piece that asked us, how do we think about what our vocation is uh, in this time? Right. I mean, it had only been a week or a week and a half I've been sitting around and I'm, I'm 
seeing news reports of people doing great heroic things for their for their neighbors and wondering oh my goodness here i am stuck in my house what what is there for me to do um and mary seemed to be a model of someone um, able to open to god in this moment who shows up and says at such a time as this for such a time as this here is your vocation to be um uh the god bearer in this moment in history um and, and so for me, as I reflected on that, I thought, well, there's one thing I can do, and that is, you know, try a little bit every day to get some words on a page. Uh, I have found, you know, over the last several years that sometimes something I write means something to someone, can help them discern their own vocation, can speak a word of grace or hope, uh, or um, can make one of the resources of the Christian spiritual traditions uh, more accessible and available in a time that matters. Um, the key around that is to not um, judge or compare your sense of vocation, what you can do at this time to what other people are doing. I'm not an ER doctor. I will never be an ER doctor. Um, but, but this is what I can do. So my neighbor who is an extraordinary seamstress, I mean, is making wonderful masks and we bought our masks from her and that's something that she can do and she can make them, uh, them available. Um, so one of the things I think for me writing can do is it helps me um, to, in just a small way, say, okay, um, maybe uh, if this is what God calls me to, maybe these words can matter to someone. Um, and and it's not just writing about spirituality. I've also been working on a, a, a children's novel. Um, oh. But don't tell my dean or my colleagues. They'll... Uh, think I'm not serious anymore. Uh, but but I, I had written a couple of chapters and I managed last week to write a third chapter. And so I printed them all off and I took my 10-year-old daughter into her bedroom and I read the three chapters to her and she laughed at just the right places. Oh, uh, she lit up at just the right places. And so even that writing, I mean, that wasn't saving the world, um, mm. but it was bringing her some joy and bringing me some joy uh, at the same time. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's in the in the Mary piece. I I talk about that that little um, not uncommon way that Christians in the in the tradition have talked about the duty of the present moment, what embracing what the present moment asks of us. Um, and if you're a nurse, it asks one thing of you. If you're a pastor, it asks another thing of you. If you're a professor, it asks of you to figure out how to teach preaching and spiritual formation online when you've never thought that was possible. If you're a writer, yeah. it asks of you to get words on the page. Um, and, and so that's what we all have to do is, is continue to discern. Um, right. The reason it's been hard is simply because like prayer, writing thrives on routine. <laughs> it thrives on the familiarity of the place. So my writing usually involves my getting to my office in the morning mm -hmm. and spending the first hour at a, in a certain chair in the corner. Well, that chair's gone and the morning is totally different. And so, um, and then the thoughts crowding my mind, worry, panic, fear of my own health, fear of my family's health, you know, all those kinds of things, they crowd out the thoughts and the ideas that I need to have in order to write. So um, my daily walks have created the space for those ideas and inspirations to, um, to come back in. Um, yeah. So necessary and more difficult at the same time. Yeah. 
in the conversation that I had with Marjorie Thompson right at the beginning of the virus and pandemic arriving in the United States, um, she talked about the importance of prayer and how she was just really imploring me and all of us to pray that it actually matters, that there's something about that energy that connects with the energy all over. And I just, as I sat with that, uh, I also thought of Merton and how it is said that when he showed up at the Abbey, he asked, I wondered what was holding the world together. And now I found it. So seeing the monks praying the hours and holding the world together in that way. And, and so the, I've just wondered if maybe uh, part of all of our work as people of faith is to be on the front lines of prayer and to actually believe that that matters and that it, that it, and, and that we may not know how it matters, but releasing that might be part, of the practice. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and for me, um, I've never considered my call in prayer to be prayers of intercession. Maybe it's been my uh, theological mind has asked too many questions about how that works, or yeah. uh, I've never known the words to say. Um, but it's been in the last couple of weeks, I felt a, um, a particular call uh, to intercessory prayer that says, that says in, in a way the spirit was saying, Roger, put your questions aside. Um, uh, but, but find people who need your prayers and hold them, um, before God. And yeah. you mentioned Marjorie Thompson, but her chapter on prayer and her ways of describing intercessory prayer in her wonderful book, soul feast are really beautiful because she has this guided meditation where she just invites you to picture someone or a situation you're praying for and imagine um, the, the, the light of God just cascading over them and holding them and bringing them to a place of, of flourishing. And that's helped me immensely uh, because sometimes I don't know what to pray for and I don't know how and I don't have the words, but I feel like I can just hold them, uh, that person, that situation, this group of people um, before God. So I've, I've felt a new, a renewed sense of, of being nudged in that, in that direction. Also because intercessory prayer um, uh, is a way of, um, I, I wouldn't say curing, but uh, uh, ameliorating my own self-pity sometimes, right? Oh, what was me? Uh, my neck hurts from being in Zoom meetings, you know, yeah. the world is ending and, and, you know, it calls us out of ourselves. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Speaking of prayer, are there other spiritual practices that are keeping you particularly grounded or centered right now? Um, uh, I wonder how it is for people with, uh, with, who have rhythms and practices of prayer and how, I haven't heard much conversation about this, how those are being upended, but also how they're sustaining people. Mm -hmm. So uh, we mentioned my spiritual formation class. Um, uh, it, it's spread out over the whole academic year. Uh, so I'm with them for nine months. And in the second half in January or early February, they develop a rule of life mm. and their job is to keep that rule of life for about three months. And then they write a paper reflecting on what it was like to develop a rule of life and, and um, 
and what it was like to keep it and what the challenges and the graces were and the joys in that and what they would do differently if they were doing it again. Uh, I can't wait to get their papers this year uh, because I know that you have, I taught this course has a pandemic and quarantine right. struck right in the middle of keeping, keeping their rules. Um, and I want, I think I'll get a couple of things. I think I'll get, because usually they write, say this about spring break. They say, oh, my rule of life just went out the window in spring break because I went home to visit my family and I was in a different place and the routine was different. I had less control and I just couldn't mm -hmm. keep my practices. Uh, uh, so I'm expecting there's going to be that about the pandemic. Everything's different. I just couldn't do it. But I think there are going to be f folks who say what this did was it kind of like a red wine reduction sauce. I had to reduce my rule to its essence. That what is that one, that one thing that can keep me open to God? That can, when everything else is moving around, is there one thing I can come back to? What was it? And they might have found that they wrote ten different rules because they're always very ambitious. I'm going to do these ten different things, and they might have find that oh, that was the one that really mattered. Um, that's a long way of saying for me there there are uh, there are, my rule has you know trying to move my body in healthy ways, make healthy eating uh, choices, pray every day, do a little writing every day, you know, just to make music yeah. every day. Um, uh, and some of those have become absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, so the praying every day, right? Getting, just getting in the chair and, and having that time in scripture uh, and silence. Um, that's been really important, a touchstone of the day. Um, part of my rule about making music every day, um, getting to the piano and singing louder than anyone else in the family wants me to sing until they have no choice but to join me. <laughs> we won't be streaming Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals online every weekend because we're performing them in the family That's right. room. That's you know, right. Who needs <laughs> YouTube when you, when you can do that? Um, so I, I think the silence, though, it, and the walks. I'm taking a lot of walks, and I think those two things... Um, and it's just the regularity of them. I think it could be anything. Um, but when, when all the other routines are different, coming back to that one thing that just, I mean, once again, Marjorie Thompson, I mean, right. Soul Feast, one of the best books, uh, books yeah. there is. She talks about a rule yeah. of life being like a trellis that holds the vines of, of the, the roses or whatever it is off yeah. in the sun where they can, uh, flourish and sometimes it's just one little thing that holds us where we need to be so that we can um, feel the light of God's grace on our cheeks when we need yeah. to yeah you bringing up the music makes me remember how much I love being in academy communities with you because I hear your voice and it's so beautiful and I think I've asked you at the last time we were together uh, if you were in choir or you know grew up doing that and you said yes and I connect with that as well. Grew up singing in church choir and concert choir, high school and college, all those things. So uh, I'm wondering, yeah, what is music? What's the role that music has played in your life? And of course, as you said, it's very important right now. It's been really, it's been really significant. I've always loved uh, to sing. Um, uh, in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned worship and singing at the Academy uh, because we have a number of upper room worship books at our house. And so for our family worship on Sunday mornings, rather than tuning in to a, um, uh, an online worship service, we've been using the morning prayer out of the upper room worship mm -hmm. book with our family and the kids. And we've been singing songs out of the upper room worship book. And it's, it's just been a wonderful, um, 
wonderful and, and to introduce them to some of that music has been a real yeah. has been a real gift um you know i don't know that i would have thought of of singing as a spiritual practice for me um a long time ago um in the book um what we need is here my upper room books uh publication i have a chapter on the importance of the body in christian spirituality and that's something i had to discover along the way um mm. Uh, but I think looking back, I realized that, uh, you know, I was never a great athlete. I was never, um, I was in my head a lot, but, but singing was my bodily practice. I mean, uh, you can sing with just a little bit of your body, your throat, you know, but you can also sing with your full body. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think for worship, um, singing is one of the ways, you know, I do what, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we should do present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable uh, to God. I remember at one, um, one Academy for spiritual formation, we had a Methodist Bishop who was a presenter. And in one of our worships, we had an icon up there. And he, um, during worship went up to the, to the icon and just laid down in front of it for a very long time. And that was a picture of Romans chapter 12, uh, presenting our bodies and I thought to myself, I would never do that. I would never do that. But I think my just standing there and singing with my full body is doing the same, is doing the same thing sometimes. Yeah. Mm. Lovely. Do you have a favorite song that comes to mind from the worship book? Um, there's there, the beautiful one in the quiet curve of evening. Uh, mm. uh, you are there. Uh, and uh, so we love that one. Um, of course, the, the Psalm 63 is a gorgeous setting of, of Psalm 63. I love the morning and the evening hymns. Um, so many of them, yeah, yeah, are really beautiful. Yeah. So you mentioned your Upper Room book, um, and it, but you also have another book out that is, um, let's see, Threshold of Discovery, A Field Guide to Spirituality in Midlife. And that came out, in 2019, right? Just a year ago. Yeah, almost a year okay, ago, exactly. A year ago. And um, I'm just curious why you wrote it and what what drew you to to this particular writing and story? What was fun about it? What was challenging? Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for asking about that. Uh, I don't, I don't get yeah. to talk about that book uh, very much. Uh, I think it's the most fun I've had writing, uh, writing a book. Um, we have an a, a Audubon nature reserve about three miles from our house where the family would go and take walks, a beautiful place, um, acres and acres and lots of trails. And, and um, I was approaching um, 40 uh, and beginning to think uh, about the second half of life. Um, I've had some people tell me that's too early to think of the second half of life these days. That doesn't come till 50. But, you know, um, anyway. You, you think about these things when you think about them, and uh, That's right. <laughs> and and so that that turning forty seemed uh, seemed significant, and um, I knew I wanted to be kind of intentional about the way I thought about all the things that were arising in me um, uh, um, at this stage of my life. And I was just out there for a walk, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do? I'm going to come out here in the year after I turned forty, um, and I'm going to take forty walks. And I'm going to use these walks to reflect on all the things uh, that I need to think about as um, the kind of door hinges uh, opens okay. to the second half of half of life. And so, and so I did. I don't know. I don't know how I managed it. Um, it was just an idea that stuck. 
I took my first walk. My birthday's in December. I took my first walk on January the 1st. And I took my last walk on December the 14th before my 41st birthday. Um, and just used those times to reflect on uh, a lot of the different um, uh, challenges and opportunities that come with, um, uh, with entering midlife. Um, especially facing just the changes that, that arise, the, the growing sense of mortality and facing, um, facing death. What does it mean to, um, to uh, be attentive to those kinds of thoughts as they begin to intrude a little more than they, uh, than they used to? Changing sense of faith, um, uh, images of God that, that used to, you know, be really firm, not being so, you know, um, solid rock anymore what does that uh what does that mean so took that time to reflect on those things and then um uh and then my kids and ginger went on a lot of the walks with me so they're all over the pages of of the book and um yeah it was just a really a lot of fun to write yeah it's lovely very cool i just turned 38 and have described myself as solidly in middle age which is funny for me and some people have challenged that as well but it's just how I feel because I think about my parents and and their aging and mm-hmm. it's just been a lot more uh, acute for me in the past I would say even year or so uh, than than it has previously so yeah I think it's more marked by the quality of the questions you're bringing to life than by the dates on the calendar. Right. And so for folks like you and me who maybe earlier than some people have found ourselves being introspective and paying attention to the inner life, and um, um, then maybe those questions are going to show up sooner uh, uh, because we're not as practiced as pushing them away. Well, and if anything, this pandemic, I think, teaches us that time is a very fluid concept. (laughs) I joked and said, I saw a Valentine's Day card that my husband had written for me. And I thought, February 14th, wasn't that two years ago? I mean, (laughs) February, you know, I thought, no way, that's just been two months. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so yeah, the time is also a fluid concept, I think. And we're seeing that even more and more right now. Well, the very notion of midlife being a threshold of discovery, um, that came out of a conversation with my spiritual director because I was experiencing it as disruption, um, as wow. unknown territory. And I wondered if maybe it was a dark night of the soul. Faith seemed to be different. I didn't, the signposts were less clear. Um, and I remember her once saying, her saying to me, it sounds less to me like a dark night of the soul and more a, a threshold of discovery. And that was a remarkable reframing. Um, and, that's what disruption does anytime, right? It gives us the opportunity to discover, to see something differently and, and to reframe and to uh, look at the world and our lives and our relationships with, with new kinds of eyes. So I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a bad metaphor for life in a pandemic, um, a massive disruption. Um, but also we don't know what the discoveries will, will be. Um, but if we have our eyes open and our hearts attuned to what God is doing in this midst, it, it could be for us even a threshold of discovery as we go yeah. through these, this time together. Yeah. That's a beautiful hope and a beautiful prayer for all of us. Anytime, but particularly now as well. 
So a lot of your work centers on, and a lot of your academic work on postmodern spirituality. And so I wonder if you'd give us, uh, you know, in a few words or however you would describe it, what is postmodern spirituality? Why were you drawn to that as uh, both a maybe personal and academic spiritual discipline? Uh, Tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, so it actually came because someone asked me, would you come and give talks at a five day Academy for oh. spiritual formation on postmodern spirituality? And once again, my mind said, of course not. That's I couldn't do that. And my mouth said, sure, I'd love to. I have eight <laughs> months to think about these things. Um, uh, but I mean, if we think about modernity as a time of fixed concepts, um, stable ground, um, and those fixed concepts are often dichotomies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, nature versus nurture, um, uh, spirit versus flesh, mind versus emotions. Um, there's, there, are these, there are these kind of fixed dichotomies that help to navigate uh, the world, um, at least arising out of kind of enlightenment, enlightenment Europe kind of thinking. And that worked for lots of churches uh, in a certain, certain way. Uh, we knew how things, things were working. And um, post-modernity, one French philosopher um, in a, a, a seminal book, the name of which I will not be able to remember, but um, he said that in essence, post-modernity is, this is his fancy French philosopher phrase, mm-hmm. incredulity toward metanarratives. Okay. Incredulity toward metanarratives. So incredulity just means we begin to doubt and meta-narratives are just those sure stories that have made sense of our lives, mm. right? So in postmodernity, all of those stories that have structured and made sense and told us, right, what's up and what's down and what's left, they, we begin to doubt them. They don't make as much sense anymore. Um, and so that can be a fearful time. Once again, it's another disruption, right? Is, is it a threshold of discovery or is it something to be afraid to fix? Um, as, as churches have moved into this realm uh, and we discover that people are not asking questions sometimes that we weren't prepared to answer. We kind of look back and say, okay, wait a minute, we got to get back to the solid ground. How can we get back? Um, But that's gone. It doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. It's like an earthquake, uh, but it doesn't stop rumbling. It just is a constant earthquake. So the question is, how do you in this period begin to begin to live, um, finding your balance when things are, are rapidly, rapidly changing. Um, so one of the advantages of that is, is that we don't have to feel stuck with these um, dichotomies anymore. One of them that really shaped modernity was sacred and secular, right? This division between sacred and secular. Um, well, I think um, the Christian spiritual traditions can seize on postmodernity's breakdown of that and say, that's probably a good thing. Uh, inviting us to um, find uh, the holy in the ordinary or in the places where the places we would have thought were God forsaken places, right? There are no God forsaken places, right? Um, right. We should have known this all along if we'd read, read Psalm 139 uh, at any <laughs> length, right? But we, we had forgotten that we thought there were places we went to where right. things were holy. And then there was the rest of life um, that was, that was secular. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a useful, um, I think it's what churches are discovering and people are discovering is we don't have the sacred places to go to now. 
I can't go right. to my sacred place where things are sacred. I, so, so all of my time and the things I do where I am can be infused with the sacred and the holy. Right? God is God is here. So that's just one of the one of the openings that um, that this gives us. If we don't if we don't fear the doubt and the questions that arise, uh, but we say this is not the opposite of faith, but it's just a constitutive part of faith um, yeah. and living into that. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm curious, are you, uh, you mentioned the children's book novel that you're working on, but what else are you writing and, and what is yeah. that? Do you have any current projects or can we catch you with some regularity in the Christian century? Tell us about that. Well, I write little pieces uh, and the Christian Century or my seminary blog or bearings online at the Collegeville Institute or Faith and Leadership through Duke. That's where I typically write uh, yeah, my shorter okay. pieces. I am working on a, um, a book that I don't have a title for yet, but I think of it as a prequel to the book that Upper Room published uh, called What We Need Is Here. Okay. Um, so What We Need Is Here, Practicing the Heart of Christian Spirituality was really a book that looked at seven spiritual practices mm-hmm. as things close at hand, like ways we have of being open and with God that we don't have to go far for. You don't need a thin places tour of Ireland to find God, though that would be nice. Maybe not now, but that would be nice. Right. But right, right here, I'm sitting at a desk looking at a computer screen. Can it be a thin place? Indeed it can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, uh, so it was about practices. And there were seven mm-hmm. of them. Um, since then, folks uh, often in the academy would have asked me to come and give talks on, around that book. Um, and I, in the first lecture, when I give those talks, I say, you know, I don't want to dive into practices yet, but I want to spend at least this time in this lecture imagining what a, a posture would be if we want to approach prayer. So kind of, let's step back a little bit. Let's not look at the details of how we do these practices, but yeah. let's look at the posture we would take if we want in our practices to be open available and responsive to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how should we approach our practices? Uh, And then it occurred to me that that that's actually how we would approach all of life if we want to be open and available and responsive to all of life. So I look at this little book as a kind of prequel to a book on practices that explores an invitation to a contemplative posture toward life and toward our, our spiritual practices. So a contemplative posture that I might take, not a literal posture, but that attitudinal way of being when I sit down to do my Lectio Divina or I do my exam, and, but also when I drive to work, if I want to be open and available and responsive um, to God. So that's what I'm working on now when I can uh, find the time um, yeah. to do that. Yeah, lovely. Well, as we close, I'm just curious if you have a scripture, a poem, a blessing, a word, maybe a song, I don't know, uh, for us in this time as we are at home and staying here in uh, service to the most vulnerable among us. Yeah, yeah. Um, Any folks who are listening to this podcast and who have... um, heard me give any academy lectures know that Denise Levertov is one of my favorite poets and um, I have one go-to Denise Levertov poem that's good for all occasions uh, and it's called The Avowal Um, and only now as I think about it uh, I think how they're thinking about my the earlier conversation about geography and spaciousness and 
and openness to God in the, in the Midwest. Um, it makes sense to me that this would be my, my favorite poem because I think it inhabits the same kind of, same kind of quality. Um, so I'll just, I'll just, um, I'll just recite the poem for you all by Denise Levertov called The Avowal. A swimmer's dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them as hawks rest upon air and air sustains them. So would I learn to attain freefall and float into creator spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns the all surrounding grace. That's an invitation in there that I uh, desperately want to live into as much as possible. It's beautiful. Thank you so much again for taking some time out to be with us and to share more of your story. It's been a real gift and we are better because you're with us. Well, thank you, Claire. It's been a wonderful time to be able to chat with you. Thanks for listening along with us today. We recognize that having a podcast is one thing and having folks listen and engage with it is entirely another. So we're grateful you're here, you're listening, you're journeying, you're engaging. The Academy and all of its offerings exist because of you. Feel free to share this podcast with others. May it be a balm, a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope in your daily lives. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, and to learn more about Academy offerings, visit us online at academy.upperroom.org.